Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 will be our sermon text this morning. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Paul is asking the Ephesian believers to remember some things here. And certainly these things he asked them to remember would be good for us to remember also. So we've entitled the message, Remembering Our Lost State. Remembering Our Lost State. And remembering our lost state was something that Paul frequently mentioned to individuals. He did not walk away from his lost state by way of remembrance, but several times in the book of Acts, Luke records where he freely talked about what he was and what he did before God was merciful and saved him. So we're talking about the past when believers remember their lost state. And I am a firm believer that in this life the saving grace of God will not allow us to forget where we have been saved and delivered from. So in that respect, we might begin by asking the question, is it harmful or is it beneficial to remember the lost state, our past? Some might call it skeletons in the closet, things like that. And of course, we readily would say, well, there's a lot of bad memories back there because there's a lot of sin back there because we were sinners and living in sin, indulging in sin, and, uh, you know, that was our life. Well, I would answer that, whether it's harmful or beneficial in this way, and side with the Apostle Paul, the real key to that answer is how much time you spend in the past. That's probably the most important thing. It is, as I have often said to you, good to remember things about the past, but not to spend too much time there. A scripture that comes to my mind on this subject, speaking of grace not letting us forget of where we came from or what we've literally been purged from would be one way of putting it, is Isaiah 51 and 1, and I've preached on this and it's a marvelous text. It's speaking to Israel, of course, but it says, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. So that's all believers. That's all the faithful seed of Abraham. Ye that seek the Lord, again believers, look unto the rock which you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. And actually it just come to me, to you, to me, my brother, that I preached on that text once after 
visiting with a pastor, that Santa Rita mine down there. Is that the name of it? Up towards Silver City, whatever, there, Damien Silver City. I remember visiting that with a preacher friend and standing up there and looking way down in that thing, and it's big. And uh, at some time thereafter, Providence crossed my mind in that scripture, and I thought, man, that was it. That's it, you know? And that's a good illustration. It was good to stand in the top and look way down there. But it would have not been pleasant to go down there. It would have took a lot longer to get back out of down there than it would to have got down there. So when we talk about visiting our past as far as sinners and the sins and things like that, uh, again, the text said there in Isaiah, look. And the admonition would be, but don't loiter there. Okay? It's kind of like if you uh, go back to a hometown or everything, everything's changed. The best thing you can do is just kind of drive through and look. Don't stop and start ciphering around. You'll just get all disappointed and upset that things aren't like they were and you don't like the changes and blah, blah. And, you know, so that's what I'd say about remembering our lost state. It's good to look, it's good to visit. Don't loiter, don't spend the night, don't rent a room, don't stay there, but be reminded of what you were and then appreciate you're no longer there but in a better place by grace. You've been delivered and that now is much better than there was. Perhaps a quote of John Newton would be appropriate here. It comes to mind. John Newton was the writer of the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. And I love what he said by grace. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think that pretty well sums up about how long to spend in the past. Well, Paul reminds us of some things here and he wasn't just talking to these Ephesian believers when he talked about this, although they were Gentiles, so it did apply to him, but many of the churches that Paul was instrumental in starting or being used of God to build were Gentile churches. And so he starts off by reminding us some things, but it applies to all who are lost, whether you're Gentile or not. And these are the things we want to look at enumerated in verse 12 here about the things that apply to us when we were lost. And these are very important. Now, it says, beginning at verse 12, at that time. So, verse 11, remembering times past. And in remembering times past, we remember that at that time, first of all, ye were without Christ. Now, that's what it means to be lost, isn't it? Is to be without Christ. And as I say that, I don't know how to describe and put adequate words to what it means to be without a Christ, without Christ. In other words, there is an emptiness 
of being without Christ, that kind of reminds me of that mine. It was a big old hole in the ground. And it was empty where they had emptied and dug for years and years and years. A big hole, a big void. To be without Christ is just that. (laughs) I mean, call it a hole in your soul, but more likely it's the emptiness of the human soul without God, without Christ. In fact, I I would rather go the other way. And let's take our thoughts to outer space. I heard something this week... uh, some little tidbit of fact about some, uh, what were they, rockets, uh, spacecrafts of some kind that they sent up in the 70s, uh, Voyager, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, and that they've been traveling ever since then, and uh, they're still going, still sending stuff back, and I forget what fear, fear they're in out there. They're beyond any fear. They're out in space. And that in order to get somewhere out of the solar system, they're going to have to travel for another 420 some odd something other years. And, you know, all that. Well, I don't know half that data is right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put two cents of stock in none of the data. But the bottom line I want you to think of, if half of that's true, how much space is out there? Right. What a huge, empty place space is. It, it kind of scares me. I'm going to be honest with you. Think about it. Y'all all know I'm a little claustrophobic. You know, I've got a claustrophobia problem nowadays. But anyway, that is in and of itself one thing. But the opposite of that. I've thought of that. I thought about it before I had the claustrophobia problem. Can you imagine? You know, like, like when you see those guys walk in space and they got to... scares me to death. Can you imagine floating in space until you die. That's horrifying. Well, hell will be worse than that. But that emptiness out there, well, to be without Christ, I believe, is the big empty. The big empty. The vanity. The nothingness of being without Christ. That's the way I feel. How about you? I mean, we who have Christ can relate to the emptiness of not having Christ. But those that don't have Christ don't know how empty they are. And the only way you know is by grace to have Him. But of course we see illustrations in Scripture and we see it in people around us. The man in Luke 12 thought he had it all. He was without Christ. This night, I don't know how many barns he had. I don't know how many goods he had and how many assets. But he was a rich man. But he was without Christ. And he died without Christ. And he had nothing to give in exchange for his soul because he was without Christ. The rich man in John 11. And I'm not picking on rich men, but the Bible speaks of the rich and how difficult it is. Riches can be a hindrance to the kingdom. The rich man fared sumptuously, it says, compared to the old beggar Lazarus. But the tables turned in death, didn't they? And the man was in hell without Christ. He lifted up his eyes, being in torments. So when we say being without Christ, we're talking about something that we can't really comprehend, the infiniteness of that emptiness. And that's not good grammar, but I hope I made the point. 
But to be without Christ is to be without the knowledge of Christ, to be without the faith in Christ, to be without Christ as Savior, to be without Christ's presence in your soul. I cannot imagine that, can you? As a believer, the knowledge that is most valuable is the knowledge about Christ. I don't care about the statistics of outer space. They're interesting, you know, to hear them, but I don't, I don't trust scientists. I trust this book and the chapter and verses that I can turn to that I know are dead on accurate. And you know what? I can find out all about that other stuff when I get there. We'll see it all better and clearly and we'll spend eternity learning about God creating space and everything therein and solar system, singular or plural. <laughs> I'm not going to lie awake. I got better things to occupy my mind than stuff like that. And it's in this book. So to be without Christ is the ultimate loss. You know, we, we, can, we can do without a lot of things, can't we? But as believers have written down through the ages, it's in, unimaginable to anybody that's been saved by grace to be without Christ. And thank God we don't have to worry about that, do we? Because if we got Him, we're always going to have Him. Nothing can separate us from Him. Amen. Nothing. But to be without Christ is to be dead in trespasses and sin. To be without Christ is to be with and still in Adam. And to be without Christ is to be perishing on the broad road that leads to destruction. That's where we all were. Without Christ. Secondly, at that time you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now before this generation... Alien used to mean something else. Now then, alien has taken a whole new definition, doesn't it? I've got an old, old dictionary. And the old original meaning of alien is a foreigner. Not some little green man from outer space. But a foreigner. A foreigner of any kind. And today we've got quote-unquote immigrants... And if some say you shouldn't call them illegal and we get into all that and all this PC terminology, but the bottom line is they're foreigners. Foreigners. It's not that they're not unwelcome here, but it's what your plans are when you come here. And that's another issue, but it's a foreigner. So this is what Paul is saying, that you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were a foreigner. And a foreigner in that sense, in the old Webster sense, means and is in reference to citizenship. So somebody that had French citizenship coming to an America would have been a foreigner. And they were called foreigners. And if an American went to England or Scandinavia or somewhere, they'd be a foreigner because their citizenship was not in the country they were in. You know, why didn't we stick with that? That's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, you know, those old definitions pretty well nail it down, don't they? I mean, 
we don't have to come up with these politically correct. But, but it has to do with a natural birth, you know, and even that, our citizenship is defined by that. If you're naturally born in a country, you're a natural citizen of that country, you know. So that's what it's talking about here. Com- aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. These Gentiles were not Jews. That's what he's saying. You were not a Jew by birth. You were not the natural seed of Abraham. And then we got the word commonwealth, and that's pretty foreign to us, isn't it? I like that word. That goes back and it's got some, you know, old words carry meanings. I mean, isn't, you know, it's kind of amazing, this is off the cuff, but isn't it amazing that the stuff that has real meaning is the stuff that's going by the wayside? Huh, the Bible, redemption, blood, all that good stuff. You know, and the vocabulary that we learned in school as children, now those words are obsolete and not correct and have been replaced by other things and everything's getting redefined. No wonder everything's in a mess. When you leave the black and white of anything, it's going to be chaos. When I hear the word commonwealth, I think of one thing. I think of the state of Virginia. You know, Virginians stuck with calling themselves being of the commonwealth of Virginia. And I don't think they were bragging about the riches. They were talking about their citizenship of that state. And commonwealth means just that. It's similar to, uh, you know, Virginia was just the name of where the commonwealth was. But the commonwealth identified that group or that body of people who were united together under that state government in the place known as Virginia. Very simple. So a commonwealth is just that. Uh, a New Mexican wouldn't have been a citizen of the commonwealth of Virginia. You know. So Paul is saying here that as sinners, and this is true of you and I, since everybody here I think is a Gentile too, but again, it don't matter if you were a lost Jew. You were a natural Jew, but you weren't of the commonwealth of the faith of Abraham. So, He's speaking to them here that you were foreigners outside of the national election of the seed of Abraham. And that's really what it boils down to. And that's true of all non-Jews. In fact, Romans chapter 3 makes this abundantly clear here where Paul asks the question, 3 and 1 of Romans, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were communicated the oracles of God. So Gentiles were foreigners to the oracles of God because they weren't committed to Gentiles in the way that they were committed to the elect people, the seed of Abraham. And of course, the oracles of God contain the gospel. And the oracles of God, the Bible, the things that God revealed and everything to Jews, the dealing of the Jews, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had rights, privileges, blessings that nobody else had. People don't like that to this day and people persecute the Jews because of that very thing. But that's the bottom line and that's the fact. God chose one man. God made a covenant with that man. God promised perpetuity to that nation. They are the elect people. They are the apple of his eye. And there was no other nation or no other people that God did that with. 
And if you weren't the natural seed of Abraham, you weren't a part of that. But again, I reiterate as Paul says, it's better to be of the seed of Abraham by faith than of the seed of Abraham by circumcision or blood. But they were not. So, foreigners to that relationship that God had with Israel. Foreigners to the faith that Abraham had. Thirdly, at that time you were strangers from the covenants of promise. This is a follow-up on what we just discussed. Strangers, again, another word for foreigner, from the covenants of promise. Now what is a stranger? Well, it's an outsider, isn't it? An outsider to somebody. Not someone who is included in there. Like we talked about the commonwealth of Virginia. You know, if you weren't a Virginian, then you were a stranger in that regard. A foreign stranger. So, not Abraham's seed, but Gentiles, obviously not having the oracles of God, not knowing anything of the Word of God, not for the most part having heard any prophet or hearing any prophecy or any vision. They were strangers or estranged from the covenants of promise. And the covenants of promise were made to whom? Abraham's seed, the commonwealth of Israel. Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verse 14 there. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14 through 16 elaborates upon this. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So Paul's making that very point right there. That the covenants were made with Abraham and his seed, and therefore the promises contained in them. And what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. If you've ever taken out a loan, you've you've made a covenant. You know, the bank made a covenant with you, you made a covenant with them. That's what it amounts to. And God's part was that He promised to bless Abraham's seed. And I will go a step further and say that was conditional and proportional to their obedience. And likewise, he promised punishment for their disobedience in proportion. That was the covenant. And the covenant was made to Abraham and his seed and not to anybody else. Like it or not. Like it or leave it. That's the way it is. God is sovereign. He could have chose anybody. He chose the man called Abram. And he made a covenant with that man he's never made with anybody else in this world and with his seed. So those covenant promises were to them and his seed. Again, there was the natural covenant to the seed. Sign of circumcision was the evidence of that. But then as Paul's talking to the Galatians, we see that that verse I just read to you, that the Gentiles would be brought under that also, but it would be by faith. They wouldn't become Jews in the flesh. They would become Jews 
similar in the sense of having and possessing the faith that Abraham did. So in that sense, a spiritual Jew, if you would, if that makes sense to you. Much superior than being a Jew in the flesh. So, at that time, again, all who are lost, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, but particularly Gentiles, were outside of the covenant promises of God's blessing. So when we were lost... All we had promised to us was punishment. And that's true of anybody. Next point, at that time in the lost state, you had no hope. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? That does not mean that every human being is entirely without hope. In fact, I would say contrary to that, I'm speaking humanly and in the flesh it is hope that sustains people think about that for a moment that hope is a big thing I mean you need to let it melt in your mouth for a long time and into your brain the animal world knows nothing of hope They just live and they just die and they do things by instinct. But God made us in His likeness and there is such a thing as hope. And it is almost like hope is what drives the human soul. It's what drives the human life, drives the human spirit. I mean, you know the stories. Survival stories, perseverance stories of people, whether they... some disease... Uh, a POW stranded on an island at at sea, shipwreck, whatever, all kinds of things. And many times people say, well, how did you make it? And they said, well, just hope. Just the hope that one day I'd get delivered or this. You know, just hope. And on the converse of that, what do we hear many times? People just crawl up in a ball and die when they give up. When they give up, we call it giving up. Don't they? And if you think there's not nothing to that, just, again, think of how many people, married couples, been married years and years. One of them dies and ain't no time the other dies. My own parents did that, and I know numerous others, same thing. You say, well, they just gave up. Well, yeah, to some degree. And again, it's physiological. Death is, I know. But there's that connection between that which is not physical Everybody has hope in something. People die and commit suicide when they have and give up no hope. That's, that's basically an identifiable characteristic, isn't it? No hope. What I'm saying to you is, even when you were lost and I was lost, we had hope. We had hope in a lot of things. We had hope in the wrong things. And we didn't have any hope in God. The atheist has a hope. Many hopes, perhaps. It's just the wrong kind. And there's nothing worse than having a false hope, a vain hope, or an empty hope. What do I mean by that? Hoping in something that's never going to happen. Hoping in something that's never going to come true. You might as well waste your money buying lottery tickets. You're probably never going to win. You know? But there are people that spend money, 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 money all the time 
in hopes of something that even the mathematician percentages tell you it's billion, trillion to one. Again, it shows the foolishness of the sin nature, doesn't it? When there is such a hope, that's a sure thing. So even the atheist has a hope it's just in the wrong thing because it's all idolatry. If we're without Christ, we are worshiping idols of some kind. It may be yourself. It may be somebody else. It may be riches. It may be material things. It may be golf. It may be sports. It can be anything. The idolatrous things are unlimited. There is no limit to idolatry of what man will pursue and put hope in. How many people had their hope in the Bengals? How many people put their hope in a racehorse? Well, as a bunch of money. Or the lot. You see what I'm saying? And all of that just does one thing, doesn't it? Brings disappointment, heartache, misery. But every hope has an object, you see. Faith has an object and hope has an object. Why would a man put a million dollars on a racehorse to win a race? He gotta have some faith or some hope to some degree, or else he's just an out and out fool and got a million dollars to lose. And sadly, having no hope only sets in when it's too late. Somebody dies. Well, the hope in whatever they had in this world is all gone then because death erases it, doesn't it? It puts an end to it. To die with an earthly hope is to die without Christ and nothing at all. That's usually when it's discovered. Too late, isn't it? If your hope is not an eternal hope, a real eternal hope, a Christ-based hope, then it is no hope. And whatever you were hoping in and whatever I was hoping in when we were lost, it was no hope. Because the moment we died, we'd found out we come up empty. And that is so very sad. Now there, like I say at a funeral, there's people there without any hope. Probably most people fit into the category of hoping but you're never going to know until you die and then it's too late when you find out that in spite of all your hopes, you have no hope. So it's a terrible thing to be without hope. To be without hope is synonymous with being without Christ because Christ is the only hope there is beyond the grave. He being the resurrection of life. At that time, you were without God in the world. And like hope, I would say to you, even the worst atheist has a God, at least one, because it's in man's nature. It's in our nature. The law of God's written in the heart. It's in the conscience. There's a little bit there. Even in the biggest infidel there's ever been, the biggest fool, the biggest blasphemer that shakes his fist and says there is no God. He's got a God hidden somewhere in his heart, in his soul. We agree it's not the God of the Bible, but He's erected His own God. He's erected His own priest. He's erected His own form of religion. 
whatever it may be. Again, minimal, it will be self, will be God. But when we're lost, we're without the true God, aren't we, in this world? And again, to be without God is to be in one thing, idolatry. That's it. I mean, if you have God, you're not going to be engaged in idolatry. If you're in idolatry, you're manifesting you don't have God in this world. And the sad part is there are many gods, aren't there? And today we're told they're all the same gods. That's one of the greatest lies Satan's ever told. It's no different than the Athenians who had 200 monuments around there, all kinds of gods. And they didn't have one god that could save them. They had not one god that could do anything for them after death. Not one. Even Zeus himself. The real God was the monument that was inscribed, Unknown God. You know, kind of like in our cemeteries, Unknown Soldier. There's an emptiness there, isn't there? Think about that. Nobody knows. I walked in some graveyards in Arkansas. Some, it, it, it's just something touching about being in a graveyard. Especially in a very, very remote place. I could tell you a story I don't have time to tell you, but... There, there's this place, I'll never forget it, where we used to deer hunt way back in the, in the hills in the Ozark Mountains up there. And I mean, that old graveyard, if you didn't know it was there, you probably wouldn't even stumble on it. You just have to stumble on it. And there's not tombstones hardly at all. It's just rocks. And it's like an old saying I grew up with, if the Lord didn't know these people any better than I do, then they're lost, you know, I mean, because nobody knows... Uh, you know, a few generations are going to know, but then third, fourth generation, ain't gonna be, nobody's going to know who's buried under that rock. God alone knows. I don't know. There's, it's just something about being there and thinking, who knows? This person existed at one time. Now nobody even knows they're here. Knows anything about them. You know, I mean... Wow, isn't that... You get, you get what I'm saying? Well, that's what it means to be without God, to be without Christ, to be without hope. There's just nothing there but a decomposed corpse. But one day it's going to, something's coming out of there to a judgment. God knows. God hadn't forgotten. Without God in the world. And it's not all the right God. They're not all the same God. There is one God. He has declared Himself. He has manifest Himself. He has revealed Himself in what we know as the Holy Bible. And there's nothing like that book because there's no other revelation like what's in that book. Everything that calls itself a God is not the God. Or the same God. And if you don't get that right, then you'll find out you have no hope at death. But that God has marvelously been manifested, incarnate in His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? So, a mistake is without excuse. God has given His Word. God gave His Son. 
And people look in this world for God and He's in this book. He's very near. He's very nigh, as Paul said at Mars Hill. God has revealed Him through prophecy, in time, in the flesh, and since that time, in this book. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. I believe it was, was it Nathaniel, I believe? Nathaniel or Philip, I'm sorry if I get it wrong, in the 14th chapter of John said, show us the Father. And Jesus mildly rebuked that disciple by saying, have I been this long with you and you, you're going to ask me something like that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And to see the Father is nothing but to see me. So again, to be without God, we would simply say is to be without Christ because they're one and the same. Not two different things, the same thing. And I wish the Jehovah Witness could see that. I'm going to include one other thing that's not in verse 12 and then we'll wrap this up and it's in verse 13. It mentions, Now in Christ Jesus ye who were sometimes were far off. When we were lost, we were a far peace from God. In fact, I would say just about as far as you could be. Now I don't know how far the sun is and the outer galaxies and all that stuff that they put names and labels and I don't even know if they exist. And again, like I said, I'm not going to occupy my mind with it. I'd rather be fascinated by what I read in this book about God that is revealed than the stuff that God has not revealed, which the Bible calls the secret things that we'll have eternity to find out about. I really do. So we just be careful about what you spend your time learning. All right? But I understand a far off, a great distance. That's what a far off means, wasn't it? And the more we think back and can remember how distant we were from God because of our sin, selfishness, etc., then again, the more we can appreciate God covered that distance. You know, it's much more special, isn't it, to get there when you've come a long way than when you come a short way in it. I mean, the anticipation after miles and miles of travel or travail or walking or hardship or whatever, the greater it is, the more appreciative and the sweeter it is to get there. And I mean, if you've been on the other side of the world, home would be much sweeter than coming from the East Coast, wouldn't it? I mean, you see what I'm saying? Well, as sinners, we were separated from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, because of sin. And I think we were so separated from God, it's a distance we can't measure. <laughs> I mean, God is holy. We are sinners. I mean, that's, if you can label it, that's as far as the east is from the west. And let me say this. We weren't making any effort to get closer. Well, let me take that back. We probably were making effort to get closer. Because sinners by nature want to work. You know? But think about it this way. Whatever distance that was, the more if we worked 
to try to reconcile ourselves or get right with God, it appeared to us we're closing the distance, but God is still moving away. We weren't closing any gap whatsoever. We weren't making any progress whatsoever. Neither is anybody that's, that's engaged in any kind of works, rites, or ceremonies, or anything other than the free and saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. They're not getting closer. God's still moving away from them. God's only going to move to you when you come through His Son. And in fact, bottom line is, sinners aren't seeking God anyway. They're seeking their own self-righteousness. That's why they're doing that to start with. But the bottom line is, it's a great separation. And yet God closed that distance. And isn't it an amazing thought? I must go back to that thought I said earlier in that statement. What Paul said at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Those Athenians as sinners were far away from God. Yet Paul said, yet God is nigh to every one of us. How can He be so far and yet so close? Well, when the gospel is preached, Christ is made nigh. God is real close. When a person reads this Bible, even though they're alienated by sin and the soul, God is very nearby. And that's what the gospel does. It bridges that distance and brings us in contact, brings the sinner to an exposure and a contact with Christ. And let's wrap it up with that, shall we? Verse 13. But now, okay, we've been talking about what? Remember in time past that at that time ye were, okay? We've been visiting there, right? We have. Some of the things not pleasant. We've probably had some unpleasant thoughts and memories about our past when we were dead in sin and so forth and so on. And rightfully so. But that's all to bring us to this. Alright? And that's the objective Paul is driving at. That's what you were. But now, you got to love the buts. you got to love the buts. Right there in Ephesians 2. You know, I read it to you in Sunday school. About being dead in trespasses and sin and all we were in verse 2 and 3. Paul had a habit of that. And then verse 4, what does he do? But God! <laughs> you got to love the buts. <laughs> You really do. But now. So when you think of the past, make sure you get back to the here and now real quick. You say, oh, but sin so abounded back there. Yeah, but grace is much more abounded, hadn't it? My sin, I was so far from God and so this. Yes, but Christ was able to find you and pull you out of the mire right where you were, right? But now, opposite. Now, opposite of being without Christ. Opposite of being an alien. Opposite of being strangers to the promise. Opposite of being without God. Opposite of being without hope. But now you're in Christ Jesus. Got that? But now in Christ Jesus makes all the difference. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Very quickly. It means to have Him as your Savior. Means to believe in Him by faith. Means to stake all on Him and what He did at Calvary. To know Him as Redeemer. To have faith in His blood. That makes the difference for your sin. 
Nobody comes nigh to God except through Christ and the blood of Christ. And if Christ did not shed blood, we couldn't come through Christ. It's through Christ's person, work, and shed blood that we come. Now we are what? In Christ. We are citizens of a heavenly household, family. We're not a stranger anymore. We are adopted children of the King. We are heirs and joint heirs. The promises are now ours. And God who was unknown to us is now very, very real by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And now we have the hope that surpasses all hope. You know, Paul put that in, didn't he, when he was talking about to the Thessalonians about the coming of Christ and what's going to happen and about those who die in the Lord, you know, and so forth. And he said, I wouldn't have you to be like others. Be ignorant, brethren. Those who are without hope and without God in the world. We're no longer that way. We don't have a hope. We have the hope. And that is so very important. And now then we don't have to fret about what's beyond the grave because this book has told us to some degree and hope tells us we don't have to know everything. Our hope tells us that Christ came out of that grave like one that we will someday go into in the same way He went into it, dead, but that when He came out of that grave, He took death's stinger with Him. So Paul could exclaim, Oh, death, where is thy sting? <laughs> I, you know, I'm not afraid of an of a insect don't have a stinger in it, are you? I mean, you know, unfortunately, they all got stingers. But what a marvelous analogy, is it not? O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? And he's alluding to one thing. Christ came out of that tomb and overcame death. And that means the sting is out of it for me and you. Now folks, that's something that'll do you some good when you stand over a pit and we're putting a loved one in there. It's something that will do us good if we can remember it and are able to by God's grace when we're taking our last breath. It can be, as we often say, not something to be dreaded, but just like a door. And God's told us what's on the other side. We don't have to fear what's over there. We know. Our Lord's over there. One time He was over here. Death couldn't hold him. He went over there. And he's promised to take us over there with him. You can face death with that. May God give us the grace to do so. So visit your lost state. Remember your lost state. But make sure you quickly get back to now. That's where the blessings are. God bless this to your ears.